Abolition. 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 The fourth challenge is to take back our streets from crime, gangs, and drugs. And we have actually been making progress on this count as a nation because of what local law enforcement officials are doing, because of what citizens and neighborhood patrols are doing. We're making some progress. Much of it is related to the initiative called community policing because we have finally gotten more police officers on the street. That was one of the goals that the president had when he pushed the crime bill that was passed in 1994. He promised 100,000 police. We're moving in that direction, but we can see it already makes a difference. Because if we have more police interacting with people, having them on the streets, we can prevent crimes. We can prevent petty crimes from turning into something worse. But we also have to have an organized effort against gangs. Just as in a previous generation, we had an organized effort against the mob. We need to take these people on. They are often connected to big drug cartels. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. And the president has asked the FBI to launch a very concerted effort against gangs everywhere. everywhere. You must take back the streets. And you take back the streets by more cops, more prisons. I hope this crime bill, when it passes, the Biden-Hatch crime bill, as it becomes law, God willing, I hope that we will have ended once and for all this notion that somehow Democrats are weak on crime. The consensus is, A, we must take back the streets. It doesn't matter whether or not the person that is accosting your son or daughter or my son or daughter, my wife, your husband, my mother, your parents, it doesn't matter whether or not they were deprived as a youth. It doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society. The end result is they're about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe, shoot my sister, beat up my wife, take on my son. So I don't want to ask, what made them do this? They must be taken off the street. We all agree on that. Now, we can find some fringe folks and left-wingers in my party who say, no, nah, that's not what we should do. Unless we do something about that cadre of young people, tens of thousands of them, born out of wedlock, without parents, without any conscience developing, they will or a portion of them will become the predators 15 years from now. And Madam President, we have predators on our streets. They are beyond the pale, many of those people. Beyond the pale. I don't care why someone is a malefactor in society. We have an obligation to cordon them off from the rest of society, try to help them, try to change the behavior, but they are in jail. Mr. Speaker, I rise in strong opposition to this so-called crime prevention bill. Mr. Speaker, let us be honest, this is not a crime prevention bill. This is a punishment bill, a retribution bill, a vengeance bill. 
all over the industrialized world now, countries are saying, let us put an end to state murder, let us stop capital punishment, but here what we're talking about is more and more capital punishment. What we're discussing now is an issue where some of our friends are saying, we're not getting tough enough on the criminals. But my friends, we have the highest percentage of people in America in jail per capita of any industrialized nation on earth. We've beaten South Africa. We've beaten the Soviet Union. What do we have to do? Put half the country behind bars? Mr. Speaker, instead of talking about punishment and vengeance, let us have the courage to talk about the real issue. How do we get to the root causes of crime? How do we stop crime? And Mr. Speaker, I've got a problem. I've got a problem with a president and a Congress which allows five million children to go hungry, two million people to sleep out on the streets, cities to become breeding grounds for drugs and violence. And they say, we're getting tough on crime. If you want to get tough on crime, let's deal with the causes of crime. Let's demand that every man, woman, and child in this country have a decent opportunity and a decent standard of living. Let's not keep putting poor people into jail and disproportionately punishing blacks. Time of the gentleman has expired. Abolition today. You just heard clips from the architects of legalized slavery in their own words at the time in 1994, Biden and Clinton, with a protest by Bernie Sanders. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard, 6 Central and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. My name is Max Parthas. I'm joined by my co-host, Yusuf Hassan. What's up, Yusuf? Hey, peace, Max. Peace and blessings be upon all of our audience listeners as well. Amen. Last week, we broke down the 13th Amendment like bosses. This week, yes, we have passed legions of idiots puppets and follow the money like we're supposed to do. But before we dive into that, we're going to get a few words and find out how our week has been. And also, I got an announcement to make. So you said, what's been up this past week? You, you, what's been going on, man? Hey, man, you know, just continuing in the struggle, but also, you know, things are looking up on many different avenues, you know, crazy stuff going on in the news with the people storming the capitals with guns. You know, we're going to have to address that at some point, you know, but on the personal level, yeah, things have been great. Classes are over for now, you know, so that's great, going to free up some time. But, yeah, you know, we have a lot to cover today, man. Unbelievable. Yes, and I might have to leave at any given moment right now uh, because, you know, everybody's doing things online. I'm a feature at Tamika Fest tonight for Niggards Night. So I'm representing as God, and um, I'm going to do some spoken word. I'm waiting for them to call my name now so I can go over there, and you're going to hold it down while I do that. Uh, that's at Tamika Fest uh, on YouTube or georgiamethepoet.com. And uh, tomorrow morning, 10 PD Poets, you know, Prismatic Dream is one of our sponsors. Tomorrow, 10 of their poets are going to be representing at Tamika Fest at 9 a.m. And also, man, um, there's wow. a couple of – 
Yeah, exactly, right? Prismatic dreams don't be playing, man. And uh, there's some good news I want to share with you. I don't know if I should share right now, but let's talk about some history. Today is the anniversary, of course, of the Kent State shooting in Ohio on May 4th in 1970 when the National Guard opened fire on students protesting the war. And in 13 seconds, between 61 to 67 shots were fired. Four students were killed, eight were injured, and one was permanently paralyzed. So that's the anniversary of today. Uh, and also, 28 years ago, on April 28th, 29th, the people of L.A. rose up in violent protest after all the police involved in the beating of Rodney King on camera were acquitted with none held responsible. And here we are three decades later, so desensitized that 10 Rodney Kings could be brutally beaten by an all-white police department on national news, and it would be little more than a normal day. So, you know, those two things stand out for me in the history of this country. The good news, I guess, since they haven't called me uh, yet, is I'll share it real quick and then pass you the mic, is that I've been in communication uh, with a variety of allies. As you know, we work with the Quakers. The abolitionists and Quakers are working together. But also I've been reaching out to people within the Juneteenth Organizational Committee because every Juneteenth they celebrate on the 19th of June when the last slaves were informed in Texas they were freed. Well, the brother here in South Carolina where I am at is also now an abolitionist. (laughs) So he wants to find out how he can incorporate the largest Juneteenth festival in the South into the abolitionist movement. And we've been coming up with some really good ideas, man. He's also going to reach out what I understand. Maybe I should be keeping this top secret, but why not, right? He's going to reach (laughs) out to the Central Committee and see if we can get a conversation going with them so we can make this type of educational opportunity a national effort instead of, you know, teaching that slavery ended in 1866 and the last slaves were freed. We'll also add the part that in that same place in Texas, they started convict leasing that very year. <laughs> you know, that same year they started it. Like, what, slavery's done? Right. Hold on, I got something for you, <laughs> you know? So there is an after that story that people need to know about. So I'm real happy to hear that connection has been made. Shout out to my man Jamal here in South Carolina. Word. All right. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's amazing news, Max. Absolutely. Yes, it is, man. You know, I see on here that you wanted me to give a brief background on Alec. Um, you know, we've been doing a lot of research on where all the money is going when it comes to these prisons. And the reason you heard that clip in the beginning is because these industries that we're dealing with right now didn't exist till then. <laughs> That's when it was all given birth. And many of these corporations have become global giants, as we have described in detail on other previously aired programs. Um, so there's a group, it's like a cabal, really, of where all the billionaires play, particularly right-wing billionaires and millionaires who want to run the country. And they have... At the point they're at right now, I believe that what they wanted to do has been done, where they have privatized legislation. They really write our bills. They write our laws. And if you don't know, it's called ALEC. And ALEC is the American Legislation Exchange Council, which was featured on the 13th. But ALEC goes way back before that. We found reports on them from back in 2007 and 2011 when they were doing the same thing, privatizing uh, schools. And we traced them even further back to their very beginnings, which started with a right-wing, conservative, evangelical preacher (laughs) who decided, you know, that they needed to take over the government in order to do what they wanted to do. And it grew from there. 
But Alec is really a cabal, man. There's a lot of billionaires in there. Uh, you'll hear it on one of the clips later, but I found out that just to be a member of Alec as a legislator, which you are encouraged to do, is only $100. And you have access to everything, including all the free food and drinks that you can get whenever they have these get-togethers. But as a lobbyist, you have to pay $25,000 to be a member. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell too much ahead of the clips, but that is outrageous. That's crazy. And they're a nonprofit organization, meaning that they don't even pay taxes. So they write our laws. They're taking all our money. They're enslaving our people. And they're the ones forcing you out right now into the streets with letters to the, uh, signed by all of the legislators that are part of Alex to get the businesses back open during a pandemic. It's Alex that's doing this, that's putting this information out there. They are the ones who want you to die in a pandemic so they can have a sandwich. Um, so right. we're talking a lot about them, you know, and the groups around them. But always keep in mind, as we, you'll hear throughout here, these places didn't exist until the Clinton Klein bill. And when that money was thrown out into the air, all the sharks just dived out of the water to get what they could. And many of them grew up to be global giants, like the ones we'll be talking about tonight. You, sir? Yeah, that's amazing. You know, I was, you know, doing a little bit of reading up on them and, you know, just looking at uh, – Many of the corporations that are part of Alec, you know, when you start hearing like Exxon Mobil and uh, AT and T and State Farm, I mean, it's like a who's who that are all part of this council. And just to hear that, you know, that they're writing, they're basically writing the legislation, you know, and, and it just gets to the floor through money. So when, when we think back to when they did all of these things with the banks. And they walked into the Senate floor and came with all of these new bills and everything that were actually written by the banks themselves. You know, it's supposed to be regulations on the banking system where it was written by the banks themselves. I'm going to tell you how to regulate me. And all of this done through ALEC. So, you know, it's a lot of stuff. And uh, see, with you having to pull off at some moment, I'm thinking that we should go straight into the Alec clips. I'm trying to save those for when you do have to pull away. Uh, oh, it, well, actually, yeah, I, I think I sh should be going up around 7.30 or so. So we should have time to listen to at least a five-minute one. I see you have up here the United States of Alec published in 2013. Is that what you want to start with? Absolutely, because I have uh, – we have three clips, actually, from them. Oh, dealing with Alec altogether that covers about 15 minutes total, you know, okay. and so uh, let's, let's get into this first one, United States of Alec, a follow-up. This is from 2013. Despite it all, Alec says it's not engaged in a lobbying effort. In fact, Alec operates not as a lobby group, but as a nonprofit, a charity. In his filing with the IRS, Alec says its mission is education which means it pays no taxes and its corporate members get a tax write-off. There is a model bill for you to review if you might be interested in introducing such a measure. This is Jerry Watson, Senior Legal Counsel for the American Bail Coalition, speaking at an ALEC meeting in 2007. Now, if you don't like the precise language of these suggested documents, uh, can they be tweaked by your legislative council? Well, absolutely. 
And will we work with them on that and work with you and your staff on that? Absolutely. This video provides a rare look at a private sector representative pitching a bill to Alex's legislative members. But I'm not so crazy as not to know that you've already figured out that if I can talk you into doing this bill, my clients are going to make a mo some money on the bond premiums. But if we can help you save crime victims in your legislative district and generate positive revenue for your state and help solve your prison overcrowding problem, you don't mind me making a dollar. These guys uh, who are paying to be part of this organization are not there just to be nice. They're there to get something out of it. The late Bob Edgar was the president of Common Cause until early this year. We interviewed him in 2012. Normally, uh, lobbyists have to register. Normally, corporations have to disclose their lobbying activity. But here, under the guise of a nonprofit, these corporate uh, lawyers and corporate officials are sitting side by side with mostly conservative state legislators. Um, they're shaping these bills. When I went down to New Orleans to the ALEC convention last August, there was a proposal to provide special needs scholarships. And lo and behold, all of a sudden I come back to Wisconsin and what gets introduced? Get ready, I know you're going to have shock look on your face. A bill to do just that. That special needs bill was sponsored by 26 ALEC members in the Wisconsin State Legislature. But the real sponsor was ALEC. Mark Pocan knew because the bill bore a striking resemblance to Alex's model. Have a look. If the average person knew that a bill like this came from some group like Alec, you look at the bill very differently and you might look at that legislator a little differently about why they introduced it. This is not about education. This is not about helping kids with special needs. Uh, this is about privatization, this is about corporate profits, and this is about dismantling public education. The bill passed in the Wisconsin House, but failed to make it through the Senate. However, in its 2012 education report card, Alec boasted that similar bills have become law in Oklahoma, Louisiana, North Carolina, and Ohio. And it's not just special needs education. Alec's education agenda includes online schooling as well. There's a model Alec bill called the Virtual Public Schools Act, which actually creates cyber academies. When kids enroll in Connections Academy, where children receive all of their instruction in front of a computer. Um, they don't go to school, they don't interact with adults, they don't interact with other children. All of their instruction is received online. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, House Bill 1030 has to do with the establishment of virtual public schools. In 2011, an online schooling bill based on the ALEC model turned up in another state where ALEC has a powerful influence, Tennessee. It was introduced in both the state Senate and House by ALEC members. Like the special needs bill in Wisconsin, this one too had its opponents. We have never opened up our state to virtual schools broadly, and that's why we have an army of lobbyists outside, many of you may have talked to them, trying right now to pass this Virtual Schools Act. And the concern I have is that 
whether you like them or don't like them, the fact is that virtual schools involve a dramatic transfer of sizable amounts of money to private sector for-profit companies. And there was something else that Julie Underwood found dramatic about Alec's model online education bill. In 2004, Alec had credited two of the nation's largest for-profit online education corporations, Connections Academy and K-12 Inc., with helping to craft the Virtual Schools Act. You can actually follow the line where you see a corporate interest and this model piece of legislation that then was proposed pretty much in whole um, in Tennessee. K-12 then lobbied for the bill and began to benefit almost immediately after it was passed in Tennessee. Lo and behold, they get a no-bid contract to provide these services in Tennessee. So it's not even a leap of faith or imagination. You can see the steps where you see the corporations creating a piece of model legislation, lobbying for it, being successful, and then having that accrue to their bottom line. What's the purpose of privatizing education in the United States? Because there are some things in the United States, like courts, legislatures, public education, that really need to remain public. I mean, that's the heart of what we are as a democracy. And what Alex seems to be doing is taking public education and legislation and privatizing them. There you have it. You know, we like to have them say it with their own voices so you can hear it too, would you, you know, as they speak it. Um, Alex, this is from 2013. They were referencing at points 2007. By this time, they had already been embedded in the prison industrial complex with groups like CCA and the GEO Group and other subdivisions that provide services and goods for those prisons. So basically, we had a lot of uh, prison profiteers writing our laws and still do to this day. You right, see? right, still to this day. You know, uh, I want to get to the one clip, you know, because I don't want to let the cat out the bag on it, man. That one, This one is just really funny as to how blatantly open they are with the way they do things, the way they operate. And I think this one here kind of like puts it in, in a nutshell right here. This one is a clip, an Alec clip from the Netflix documentary 13th you know, the Ava DuVernay uh, documentary called 13th. For anyone who hasn't seen it, I highly uh, encourage you to go check it out. Here's the clip. It's uh, about four minutes long. to their political counterparts 
most of whom are Republicans. So true ALEC, corporations have a huge say in our lawmaking. And at ALEC task force meetings, corporate lobbyists secretly vote as equals with lawmakers on bills that those lawmakers then introduce to become laws in our state. ALEC is everywhere. Roughly one in four state legislators are members. And I am proud to stand with ALEC today. And it's not hard to see why. ALEC makes their jobs troublingly easy. Here's their model electricity freedom bill, which at one point says, be it therefore enacted that the state of insert state repeals the renewable energy mandate. So as long as you can remember and spell the name of your state, you can introduce legislation. We've also seen ALEC bills introduced where a lawmaker forgot to take the ALEC letterhead off the bill without remembering to take off the ALEC letterhead to try to distance uh, the real role of ALEC and ALEC corporations from those bills. I'm just curious, does it have, does the legislation have some connection to ALEC? Representative Atkins, I'm not sure why we're pursuing this course of questioning. This bill is my bill, it's not ALEC's bill. The reason I ask is because earlier you passed out a, um, a handout that says Gottwald at the top, and it says Healthcare Compact, and there's a logo right in the middle of that page. And I went to the ALEC website, and there's exactly the same, the same font, uh, the same size, and the same logo. I mean, literally, it's verbatim. Well, it's totally shocking to know that ALEC has been around for more than four decades now. And it's even more startling to see how it began. ALEC has forged a unique partnership between state legislators and leaders from the corporate and business community. Corporations have been influencing laws for decades now through ALEC. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. Nearly every ALEC bill benefits one of its corporate funders. The corporation Walmart was a long-standing member of ALEC at the time that it adopted the so-called Stand Your Ground Law. It's a law that created an atmosphere where gun sales boomed. Walmart is the biggest seller of long guns in the U.S. has been the largest retailer of bullets in the world. So it's reasonable to think that Walmart benefited from these Stand Your Ground Laws that Alex pushed that initially prevented the arrest of the killer of Trayvon Martin uh, and was designed to prevent the arrest, prosecution, and conviction of the killer of Trayvon Martin, including through changing the jury instructions to require that a jury be told that uh, someone like George Zimmerman has a right to stand his ground, but not that someone like Trayvon Martin has a right to stand his ground against someone like George Zimmerman with a gun uh, assailing him. <laughs> well, there you have it. You know, the thing that was really sticking out for me was just the fact that not only are they writing the bills, you know, but the people that they're giving it to aren't even changing the letterheads. They're not even trying to hide the fact that Alec is the one drafting these bills and they're putting the language in there. And all the uh, legislature is doing is just rubber stamping what's there in front of them. Max? People might ask what laws. Well, example, the three strike laws, mandatory minimums, truth in sentencing, and more jail time for shoplifters all were pushed by Alec. Alec at the time was also being funded heavily by the GEO Group and CCA, who is now known as Core Civic. Well, who's GEO Group and CCA? CCA is the, was the Corrections Corporation of America, now it's Core Civic. It's the largest for-profit private prison in the United States. The GEO Group, of course, we talked in detail just a few weeks ago about who they are. 
They're part of the right. largest privately owned corporation on the face of the planet. They have they employ more people across the entire continent of Africa than anybody else. <laughs> across the entire continent of Africa. They also are the number one uh, employer in the largest corporation in two other continents, on two other continents. They didn't exist until after the Clinton crime bill. If you, uh, you should go back, look at our archives, and listen to us explain that whole thing in detail about private prisons. I've got a quote here that came from the American Bar Association, and they were saying, uh, Alex, in his view of privatized prisons, has fundamentally altered our criminal justice system, making it very profitable to arrest and lock up more Americans and immigrants and do so for longer. It should be no surprise that the Corrections Corporations of America and the GEO Group bankrolled Alex for years. That's from the American Bar Association. They all know how criminal they are. And after the release of 13th, many of the sponsors of Alec jumped ship. But I'm pretty sure they didn't give up the power that they had been used to having in order to create bills and things like that. They probably got another back door. You know, Max, you just gave me the perfect segue to our next clip dealing with Alec. Right. It's how Alec and Nikotch or Coke. What do they pronounce themselves? Coke or Coke? Before you get into the next clip, let me make one more comment. There was two people that you heard in the last clip I want to point out, okay? Uh, The first one that we heard, he was selling bail bonds uh, stocks. Like, literally, there was a bail bond company he was talking about. Right. Right. Using code words like they always use about who it's aimed at. And the other one was the person who basically developed what we know now as Alec. He was the right-wing minister uh, that I was mentioning, talking about he don't want everybody to vote, <laughs> you know? All right, well, there you go. Yeah, it, it all ties in. Like I said, it ties in. It's the perfect segue for this next clip, how Alec and the Koch's publicly backed criminal justice reform and privately, well, I should say they publicly backed criminal justice reform and privately expand mass incarceration. So it's sort of like, funding both sides. So it's a win-win situation for them. Well, here's the clip. Ava DuVernay's new documentary called 13th is being released by Netflix on Friday. It premiered at the New York Film Festival at Lincoln Center here in New York. Part of the documentary looks at how ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, has played a central role in the expansion of the U.S. prison system. ALEC's work with states to write legislation promoting the privatization of prisons, in addition to pushing for harsher, longer sentences. Joining us now is Lisa Graves, executive director of the Center for Media and Democracy, who is also featured in 13th. Talk about... um, the thesis of the film, 13th, it's not just about the 13th Amendment, but the clause within the 13th Amendment that goes from slavery uh, and the amendment of 1865 to mass incarceration today, and then how private corporations play a role in this. Well, this film is a magnificent, incredible meditation about race and crime in America, and it really tells new stories. One of the stories it tells is about how that amendment were. It says that you can't be enslaved or you can't be 
put in involuntary servitude unless you're convicted of a crime, except as punishment, has really manifested in the 21st century and the 20th century through a lot of criminal justice policies. And one of the things that Ava DuVernay brilliantly shows is the role of corporations um, in joining in this effort, this very racialized criminal justice system, how corporations through ALEC have helped advance their own bottom line. And one of the things that she helps document is the role of the Corrections Corporation of America within ALEC was a member of ALEC for a number of years, as we've written about. It was the chair of ALEC's crime task force for a number of years, and ultimately it left ALEC after it was disclosed that CCA was in the room when corporations were voting on the SB 1070 legislation in Arizona that would have uh, put, that, that was designed to put more immigrants uh, in detention facilities and jails for immigrants. And um, CCA is just one of the many corporations that has been part of ALEC as it has pushed forward both privatization of prisons as well as uh, measures to make people go to jail for longer, uh, longer sentences. And explain how ALEC works. You've got the private corporations like CCA, and then you've got the legislators who introduce the legislation written by the or co-written by the corporations. Well, that's right. One of the things we discovered when we launched ALEC Exposed was that it wasn't just that corporations were lobbying uh, these members. They were actually voting as equals with politicians at these ALEC task force meetings. So what happens is corporations help fund scholarships for legislators to go on these fancy trips. Then they're wined and dined on these trips. And then at ALEC task force meetings, like on criminal justice, the corporations actually vote as equals with politicians on these bills. These bills are written by corporate lobbyists. They're designed to advance the corporate interests. And in the criminal justice arena, we can certainly see the effect of that. Now, CCA claims it never voted on those bills. Um, you know, it was certainly there when those bills, bills moved forward that helped it privatize prisons, uh, helped make it easier for people to be put into um, employment circumstances in prisons that Ava documents as well. And also a number of bills, three strikes you're out, truth in sentencing, mandatory minimums, uh, numerous bills to put more people in jail and put them in jail for longer, which all increase the profits of corporations that fund ALEC, like CCA. So you go from CCA, uh, the Corrections Corporation of America, to ABC, the American Bail Coalition. Explain. So the American Bail Coalition is a trade group that basically has talk, documented it itself. It has praised ALEC to its members, saying that it really helped put ABC on the map. What ABC has done has, is work for the privatization of bail in this country, which has increased profits for uh, bail bondsmen, bail bondswomen, bail bond services, and it's done so uh, for people who are accused of crimes not yet convicted. One of the things that happened after we connected the dots on uh, the Stand Your Ground law in Florida and how it was pushed by ALEC um, into law in states after, state after state, after, after a bunch of corporations left ALEC, the one of the ones that remained uh, was this trade group, ABC. That's because they want a piece of the pie for people who are uh, released from jail. This is ALEC's effort to basically profitize every element of the criminal justice system, and ABC stands to benefit from that. And boy, do they ever benefit. Man, uh, it's amazing the information that you find out if you just look, you know. Um, I wouldn't mind adding a couple quotes to that. Uh, one is, as I said earlier, the reason that somebody wants you to go out and make them a sandwich in the middle of a pandemic is because of Alec. And uh, there is an email that was supposedly had been uh, provided to CMD, which is exposed by CMD, that was sent to the legislators from Alec. And it said, your Alec team has been value pushing your ideas and solutions into the mainstream. 
with nine across-the-state podcast episodes with guests such as Newt Gingrich, policy prescriptions, and hosting of nine calls with top government officials and policy experts. Alec is also coordinating a sign-on letter from policy leaders and elected officials to President Trump and state leaders urging them to reopen the economy and get people back to work. The letter praises Trump for his opening up America again plan and thanks him for a disaster response that is locally executed, state-managed, and federally supported. Man. Well, you're right there. <laughs> there it is, right there. And the stuff yeah, that we heard yeah, in videos. Sorry, brother. Yeah. Speechless. I'm speechless. That's what I was going to say, man. You know, just money. It's all about the money. It's always about the money. You know, well, there's, you know there's a Latin phrase, you know, that's uh, cui bono, who benefits. Right. And when we when we peel back that onion, you know, where we see who benefits, it sure isn't us. It sure isn't right, us right. that's benefiting from this. So – they are actually asking the question and proposing it to be considered, saying that we estimate 240,000 people will be dead by July, but it'll save millions of jobs. So they're really considering if it's okay to kill or allow 240,000 people to die so millions of jobs can be saved. They're not taking this crisis as serious as they should have, man. Like, really, the military should have been in supply in, in uh, charge of the food supply at least a month ago because we know where this is going to go. Before the meat supply and all that break down, they should have military personnel come in and assist where they can and pay extra, lots of extra money to people who are well protected to do the job to keep the main lines of communication, food, medicine, all the basic necessities going without because 300 million people getting hungry can be a freaking problem, you know? Right. <laughs> so Absolutely. They, they should have already had done all of this. They're playing games in our lives and literally talking about through people like Alex, through groups like Alex, uh, right-wing uh, extremists as far as I'm concerned because they're talking about genocide, who are pushing these types of ideas out to get us freaking killed. <laughs> so 240,000 people, man, is it worth 200? How can you even ask a question? So, again, we really need to take this thing much more serious than it is. And uh, the people who are committing genocides, as I've always said, need to be put on trial. We need our own Nuremberg-like trials where these people right. who are costing millions of lives and freedoms need to be held accountable for what they're doing. And we're showing you how it's getting done. And here's another tickler. The United States government often quotes numbers like, we spend $2.8 billion dollars on uh, Department of Corrections. But what they don't take into account is all these satellite companies that are making billions and billions more around them. The bail bond industry, as they mentioned just earlier, is about $14 billion a year by itself. Nextel or whatever the hell that is that was robbing my man on the phone a couple of weeks ago while we were talking to him, they're worth a few more billion. And there's dozens and dozens of these freaking companies whose revenue does not get included in the cost of prisons through the United States government. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm going to cover a few of them later on in the program. We have a couple of clips to deal with all of that, you know, 
you were speaking of uh, Global Tell Link. That's who you were thinking of when we were on the yeah, phone Global with uh, Dewan Dennis and uh, uh, Kenneth uh, Daniels. And, and right in the midst of the call, you know, Global Tell Link is just telling them, you know, you have 60 seconds remaining. And, you know, all of the things that they say right within these calls. You know, and, and some companies demo, actually right? quote out the prices. Yeah, some companies actually quote out the prices right in the middle of the call. Yeah. And it, it, know, it's, it's just not it's even supposed to have a human being do it. They got freaking robots now extorting you. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Next thing you know, they'll be showing up at your a business with a drone talking about give us our protection money or else. <laughs> you know, that's, that's oh, what I'm I was thinking about. about. Now I was actually thinking about that. I I shared a article on our Abolition Today page a few weeks ago. You know, I may have to go digging to, you know, recycle it, where it was showing of how drones were supposedly going to be rolled out in many cities to help control the coronavirus. And they were also speaking about how they were going to be tracking cell phone usage. But we know from the past of what they've done with all different things. They say they're going to do one thing and then come to find out many years later it was used for something far more sinister. So I can see how all of this is going to play. So people may think that you're just talking out the side of your neck, but it's real, you know, real things that can happen and most likely will happen. In the film Do Not Resist, they really expose the war industrial complex. And when I say that, I mean, for example, like what was going on in Ferguson. Uh, during the circumstances that occurred there, they found out that uh, there were more warrants than there were people. <laughs> so they had, like, right. in Ferguson as well as in nearby country clubs, I think it was like 3,000 people and had 15,000 warrants. <laughs> so, you know, the war right. industrial complex is another multi-billion dollar industry that is profiting off of what you're talking about right now, you know. So, yeah. The one industrial complex, another aspect of this many tentacle beast that we created in the United States, here in the U.S., and it really came into being in the 90s with what you heard from the opening clips. Those were the arguments for it and the arguments against it. Absolutely. So how are we doing on the uh, pro the other program right now, Max? Um, travel rain got me covered in this and let me know. So uh, it looks like they got a little started late, which is cool for me, man. We, we, we Oh, that works out perfectly. Yeah. So I want to play this clip from uh, Melvin Ray. Many people would know him by uh, Benu Hannibal Rahsun. He's also part of the uh, Free Alabama Movement. It's a clip from uh, Al Jazeera just talking about some of the conditions there. And that's going to kind of segue us into one, our musical break, and then actually the companies we're going to deal with is going to actually cover some of the stuff that he's mentioning in the uh, in the clip. It's about eight All minutes, right. this clip. Abolition. Abolition. Hi. Hey, Bennu. We've been contacted by an inmate inside this maximum security facility in Alabama. How you doing, man? Same old, same old. I see the flag. Same old shit every day. 
The man talking to me on Skype is Melvin Ray. He also goes by the name Benu Hannibal Ross Son. Benu and Kinetic Justice met at home in prison. Together, they formed an organization called the Free Alabama Movement. It began as a study group inside the prison law library. We came up learning the law, and then we got to a point where we ended up start teaching it and teaching the whole system. Soon, Bennu and Kinetic were leading work stoppages and hunger strikes, which led up to last year's national strike. Show me where you are right now. Uh, I'm in solitary confinement. I'm in a 8 by 5 square building. Bennu is one of 23,000 inmates living in a prison system built to hold about half that number. He served 16 years of a life sentence for murder, a crime he says he didn't commit. videos from the cell inside solitary confinement. Alabama's prisons are home to the fifth highest incarceration rate in the world. Nearly everyone, from inmates to the Department of Justice, agrees the system is broken. You can look on the news in the state of Alabama every day and you'll see every politician, lawmakers, prison officials, all of them are speaking about the conditions in the prison, but we're not allowed to talk about it. Officials place Bennu in solitary for failure to obey orders and for using a cell phone to talk to the media. He was supposed to be there for 15 days. They snatched me up August the 19th of last year, uh, right before the uh, nationwide work strikes on September 9th. That was eight months ago. Today, Bennu is still in solitary. What's it like being in solitary? What's the hardest part about that? It's mental torture. If you trace it back to the slave plantation, this is where solitary confinement punishment started from. And if you tried to run away, they would put you in a box. If you talk back to the slave master, they put you in a box. And so it has evolved from a small box to a small cell. And it's supposed to be raised up to a human standard. But if you put a dog in this cell, you will be charged with animal cruelty. Why shouldn't uh, prisoners have to work? It's not that we shouldn't have to work. We should not be uh, subjected into slavery. We should not be working for free. A free labor man out there with a backhoe. Uh, we don't know what his circumstances and conditions are. Uh, why he had to work his job for free. The only thing we know is that he's not being compensated for his labor. And on Free Alabama Movement, we contend that this is a violation of this man's human and civil rights. And here is a copy of the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution. When inmates join the Free Alabama Movement, they begin by memorizing the Bill of Rights. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, 
That's the amendment that abolished slavery, unless as punishment for a crime. It's all about the slaves. The only power that we have is people who are incarcerated. We can't vote. We don't have jobs. Uh, we don't have capital. The only power that we have is our labor power. But that power is not organized, it's not consolidated, and it's not educated. So we use, that's what, that's what the work strikes are all about, because that is the source of our power. Abolition. Abolition. They would come like the last three or four days, the last week of your confinement when they have to let you out. Because they have to let you out. They're going to sentence you to so long in solitary confinement. The reason he was in there three and a half years, the reason he's in there now is that's what they do. When it comes time for you to get out within that last week or so, you can look for they coming, they're going to beat you up, they're going to put more charges on you, and then they're going to hold you in there longer. So sort of a way of justifying their actions. Officials at the Alabama Department of Corrections denied our request to visit Connecticut. But they did agree to speak with us by phone about how the prison factory works. They told us that inmates make an average wage of 50 cents an hour for jobs making chemicals, clothes, furniture, and license plates. Inmates do other jobs inside the prison for no pay. Leaders of the inmate strikes call this a form of modern-day slavery. Chief of Staff Steve Brown had a different take. The 13th Amendment allows us to uh, employ inmates without um, any kind of payment as part of their cost of incarceration. Yeah, it's legal. You wouldn't have days a dime. You could just tell them, hey, they need to work. We got a lot of inmates. We got inmates working in the kitchen. We got work, we got them working on uh, mowing the yards, working in the facilities. We don't pay them anything. We found out that some 2,000 inmates also work outside the prison walls. Each day, these white vans take prisoners to work for private companies. They're paid a prevailing wage for this work. The prison system takes 40% of that wage. Just caught another van coming out of the prison. We've got guys who are flipping burgers at McDonald's. Uh, it just depends on the local area. They work in car dealerships, motor shops, uh, carpentry, uh, work masonry. Uh, yeah, some guys are out on construction jobs. Um, there are people who, I mean, it just depends on what's in the local area. Prisoners are also taken to work at state agencies. This inmate was dropped at the Department of Motor Vehicles. Officials say these government jobs pay $2 a day. While the pay is low, prison spokesman Bob Horton wanted us to know that no one is forced to work. One point to remember is the inmates are working voluntarily. That was a clip from Melvin Ray, also known as Venu Hannibal Ra's son, and also a kinetic justice of the Free Alabama Movement. Max, you still with me? Okay, so I think apparently Max is going on to the uh, the other program. He should be back with us shortly. That leaves us time to go into our musical break. We're right on time with that. It's uh, Stephanie Todd. The clip is called 
keep your eyes on the prize.
keep your eyes on the prize from Stephanie Todd. You know, it's a great track, and it's just a reminder, you know, what the actual prize that we're after, and it's abolition, which is the purpose of our show, which is the purpose of the movement. Max, are you there with us? Okay, Max is still at the other program. So we're just going to keep moving forward. You're going into our next segment, which was going to be dealing with six companies that profit from the police state. And you're going to hear two clips. One is going to be six companies that profit from the police state. And the other is how the prison industrial complex kills people for profit. And then we're going to get into some more information about the different companies and different industries that benefit from the prison industrial complex and modern slavery practice through the 13th Amendment in the prison system. There's a profit incentive to incarcerating people. There are some companies who are showing big profits who will tell you that things have never been better. Global Telic takes advantage of people who are so vulnerable. The father's in prison, it costs $17 to call dad for 15 minutes. Corizon makes money off sick prisoners by denying care. It's as simple as that. The Geo Group is able to make amazing profits by not doing their job, by not keeping facilities clean, by going cheap. The bail bondsman industry is taking advantage of people in jail by charging unbelievable amounts of money to get out. Cops seize assets by merely suspecting someone of illegal behavior. And so your car, whatever possessions you have on your person, can be taken away. CCA is moving to make prison sentences longer and harsher and making laws easier to break. America has 2.2 million incarcerated people. It's a statistic that we should be ashamed of. What corporation makes an estimated 1.4 billion a year off sick prisoners? Meet Corizon, the country's largest prison health care company. Corizon treats more than 300,000 prisoners nationwide. The word treats is used loosely. My son is incarcerated in the Arizona Department of Corrections in Tucson, contracted hepatitis C. It is damaging his liver and eventually will do the cirrhosis of the liver, go into liver cancer, and will kill him eventually if not treated. He is treatable and curable, but not receiving the proper treatment. My partner, Thomas Vogt, and he's been incarcerated here in Tucson, Arizona since 1994. He has an enlarged prostate, and there's also a growth there that needs a biopsy. Hello? We're talking about you. Did you get your pain meds yet? No. 
I'm in constant pain. I can't even sit now. They just ignore it. I cannot tell you how many of the same kinds of stories we hear on a daily, weekly basis. This is what we call malpractice in the medical field. We save money because we skip the ambulance and bring them right to the morgue. Diane Jackson, nurse at Corizon. In fact, they save so much money, they can pay their CEO nearly a million dollars. We are the industry pioneers. We are the innovators. Our team is unmatched in knowledge and passion. Six employees have resigned after two inmates at Metro Corrections here in Louisville died this year. Now, those employees are not corrections officers, but workers with Corizon, Louisville's jail health care contractor. There's no question that Corizon is profiteering from mass incarceration in this country. My son's being told they have no protocol for treating anybody with hepatitis C, so they don't have permission to even give them medicine to prevent the hepatitis C. There are no medical services being provided, in my opinion. Horizon's getting taxpayer money in 29 states, and they're vying for more. The profit motive is inherently at odds with the mission of a correctional institution. There will always be a perverse incentive not to rehabilitate, not to treat. They need help, and we can't help them. Uh, the only thing we can do is fight for them. So there you have it. The two clips from Brave New Films, uh, hosted by Henry Rollins. The first clip was entitled, Six Companies That Profit from the Police State. And the second is entitled, How the Prison Industrial Complex Kills People for Profit. Uh, I believe Max is back on the air with us. Yep. Yeah, man. Uh, You're kind of driving it home, man, with these clips. And, And, you know, people that know exactly what they're dealing with here. Uh, I'm not sure they all see it in the larger scheme of things as we do. Right now, it seems that the perspective is very national, but we're very much aware that this is now a global circumstance with the same companies in other countries doing even worse. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so going into our next segment, I think I'm going to dig a little deeper for us, you know, and hopefully it'll shed even more light on what's really going on because you know sometimes you have to fully spell it out or to quote Jay-Z some people don't get the picture until the picture is drawn you know so Mm -hmm. as I stated earlier qui bono who benefits well let's see we're gonna we're gonna uh take a look at the companies who make money primarily on the services within the prison industrial complex So the past few weeks, we mentioned how much money is earned by private prisons, local economies where prisons and jails are located, as well as state and federal monies earned from the prison population. Directional facilities are always looking for ways to cut costs. One of the most popular trends in recent decades has been the privatization of prison operations, such as medical and mental health care and transportation, commissaries, and food services. There are literally dozens of companies in each aspect of prison services that earn millions and sometimes billions for their services. Oftentimes, the services provided are inadequate, illegal, and further violate the Eighth Amendment rights of prisoners across the country. Here are a few examples. When dealing with health care, you're going to be able to find two articles on our Abolition Today page. 
One is entitled Horizon, the prison healthcare giant stumbles again. That's from February of 2019. The second is entitled Mentally Ill Prisoners Are Dying, a health pri- a private health care company's to blame. That's from uh, CBS News, October 2019. Horizon receives a per-minute-per-day rate for services, services which amounted to roughly $189 million last year. Horizon has 31 contracts in 17 states. Now, back in 2015, they had 114 contracts in 27 states, but several lawsuits have been filed for subpar care, and in several cases, prisoners have died due to inadequate health care provided by Horizon. The courts have only assessed minimal fees compared to the amount of money Horizon takes in. So they get $189 million, and maybe they have to spend out $2 million in fees every year. So to them, it's no big deal. Now, because there are only three major players in the correctional health care industry, that's Corizon, Wexford Health. Our listeners will remember Wexford Health as it was related to uh, Chris Epps and the Mississippi uh, fiasco that we covered a couple of weeks ago. And the third company is Centurion. Corizon employees in several locations have come forward with allegations that the system is badly run. One example in Arizona, a psychologist who worked for Corizon at Perryville Prison, she quit her job after just three months there, claiming, I felt my license was at risk. I felt that I didn't have the autonomy that was needed as a licensed psychologist to be able to run mental health the way it needed to be run. And there are several other examples of situations like this where staff have come forward and said how badly the healthcare system is in the prisons. Uh, those that's going to be mentioned within those two articles. If we look at food services, there are two articles that are going to be on the page. One is uh, Aramark, multi-billion dollar food vendor starves and exploits prisoners. That's from the San Francisco Bayview, uh, October 2019. And the other one is prison food and commissary services, a recipe for disaster. That's put out by Prison Legal News, August of 2018. Aramark Correctional Services and Florida-based Trinity Services Group are the two largest players in the privatized prison and jail food industry. Other companies include Summit, which has acquired correctional food service firm CBM, Managed Services and ABL Management, Food Services of America, owned by Services Group of America, and GD Correctional Services, LLC. Because these companies are mainly concerned about generating profit by lowering costs, both the quality and the quantity of food served to the prisoners tend to suffer. Now, Aramark is the 27th largest employer in the U.S. with a reported revenue of $14 billion in 2018. Its CEO made $16 million alone. Commissary. We know that this is sort of like the lifeline in the prisons because of how horrible the food service is. And you'll see in some of those food articles, you can see actual pictures. One showed a maggot stew. You know, there was basically what was served. But when we go to the commissary, there are two articles. One is entitled Prison Food and Commissary Services, a Recipe for Disaster. It's the same article that covered both topics, prison food and commissary services. 
And the other article is the big business of prisoner care packages. That's from Vox, uh, December 2017, where you can actually go to that article and they'll show you how the uh, pyramid scheme actually works towards how this, how food service and commissary is is laid out. The whole scheme it shows. But in some jurisdictions, the company that supplies prison food services has a dis, uh, disincentive to serve meals that draw prisoners to the chow hall or to the food that's served on their units. That's because the vendor not only provides meals but also manages the commissary. When the same firm controls both operations, it's like hitting the prison contract lottery. Such is the case with Trinity Services Group, which is owned by TKC Holdings, a company that also owns Kefi, which operates prison and jail commissaries. TKC, in turn, is indirectly controlled by HIG Capital, a private equity firm. Now, here's how the pay-to-play works. TKC pays, we'll give you one example. TKC pays the Florida Department of Corrections $1.17 per day, an estimate of about $36 million a year for the privilege of providing commissary operations. So what does that generate? Well, Trinity is making $875 million alone per year. Also in prison, uh, prison officials claims to stop drugs and weapons from entering the jails and prisons. Many correction agencies bar family members from mailing packages or bringing them during visits. Those who want to send food, clothing, and other gifts to incarcerated relatives at any time of year often must go through these private vendors. Keefe Group is the major player in the care package industry, raking in $375 million a year. So it's it's a, a, a chain, and it, they recycle the money with each other. They get you on one end either through the food service or the other end through the commissary. Phone services. This is the big one. Phone services. There are three articles that we're going to post. One is going to be it costs a fortune to call someone from a U.S. jail. That's from QZ.com, February two, uh, 2019. The other, regulating the prison phone industry. This is from Prison Policy Initiative, February 2019. And the third is going to be Hack of Securus. 70 million prisoner phone calls indicates violations of attorney-client privilege. So for those who aren't aware, phone services in the prisons is a $1.2 billion per year business. An an estimated total of $460 million in in concession fees was paid to jails and prisons, according to the FCC. The companies compete not based on price or service quality, but on the size of the commission. So we have Securus. Well, let's start from the top. Globatel Link was purchased for $345 million in 1999 by Veritas Capital and Goldman Sachs. And if we recall, both of them are major shareholders in GEO Group and CoreCivic. So they're, they're housing, and they're also collecting the money from the, from the phone calls. Now, 
Veritas Capital and Goldman Sachs sold the company for $1 billion in 2011 to American Securities. Globatel Link controls 50% of the market when they reached their record high also in 2014 with 215 million calls, totaling 3 billion minutes. And on average, the highest, the highest phone calls, the highest per minute, or I'm sorry, let me back up, restate that. A 15-minute phone call on average costs about $9 per minute. But here are the top five as to how much people are paying out for a 15-minute phone call. In Arizona, it's $25. In Michigan, it's $23. In Wisconsin, it's $22. In Missouri, it's $20. In Oklahoma, it's $19. Then we move on to GPS monitoring, the ankle bracelets. And there are two articles that we're going to post. One is entitled Digital Jail, How Electronic Monitoring Drives Defendants into Debt, put out by ProPublica from July of 2019. And another article, I just it's it's an old article, but it just goes to show that how long this is has been going on. This is from all the way back in June of 2019, put out by CEPro.com. The title of the article is How to Earn $85,000 Per Month Monitoring House Arrest Bracelets. So electronic home monitoring is the PC term used for it. Bracelets are used by bail bondsmen, parole, and probation departments, et cetera, either to do it themselves or contract it out to private firms. The average paid is $13.50 per day per quote-unquote client. There's also no revenue share from the municipalities, and there are no alarm licensing uh, fees required. So it's all cash in. In the article, a person was required to pay $300 up front plus a $50 installation fee as well as $10 per day. That was going to Eastern Missouri Alternative Sentencing Services. And in San Francisco, the number of people released from jail onto electronic monitors tripled after a 2018 ruling forced court to release more defendants without bail. In Marion County, Indiana, where jail overcrowding is routine, Roughly 5,000 defendants were put on monitors last year. You will be hard-pressed to find bail reform legislation in any state that does not include possibility of electronic monitoring, said Robin Steinberg, the chief executive of the Bail Project. Yet, like the system of wealth-based detention, they are meant to help reform. Ankle monitors often place poor people in special jeopardy. Across the country, defendants who have not been convicted of a crime are put on offender-funded payment plans for monitors that sometimes cost more than their bail. And unlike bail, they don't get the payment back even if they're found innocent. And the last section we want to deal with is transportation. In two articles, one is for-profit transportation companies taking prisoners in the public for a ride. This is put out by, prisoner, by Prison Legal News, September 2006. Going way back, just to show how long this has been going on, that this isn't something new. Inside the de- the other article is Inside the Deadly World of Private Prisoner Transport, put out by the Marshall Project in July of 2016. Now, the average fee 
the transport of prisoners from 80 cents to $1.50 per mile. But the average that they bring in is about $1,000 per person that they're transporting. There are additional fees associated with transporting juveniles or prisoners with medical needs. While there are no firm statistics for the total number of prisoners transferred and extradited annually, the U.S. Marshal Service, which is responsible for the transportation of prisoners and immigration detainees in federal custody, they receive around 1,000 transport requests per day and move nearly 300,000 prisoners each year through its Justice Prisoner and Alien Transportation System. Corrections departments in 26 states, law enforcement in cities such as Chicago, Atlanta, Vegas, uh, and local agencies nationwide use extradition companies. Although about two dozen private prisoner transport companies have registered with the Department of Transportation, only seven have state-level extradition contracts, with PTS having the most by far. PTS is Prisoner Transportation Services. Here are the top five players in the prisoner transportation model. Number one, Transcore America. It's owned by uh, Core Civic. They operate out of Tennessee, and they have approximately uh, 30, 300 employees and 80 vehicles. They've moved more than 25,000 prisoners in 2005. Again, this is an old article, but it just goes to show if it was 25,000 back then, and we know the numbers of those confined in prisons throughout the country has tripled or quadrupled since then, then we know that those numbers have gone up. Uh, the second one is PTS. Uh, PTS of America was formerly known as Prisoner Transportation Services, also out of Nashville. Seems to be most of them are located in Nashville or some other uh, Midwest uh, towns. I guess maybe it's the location within the country it gives them a further uh, reach. The third on the list is U.S. Extraditions Incorporated. Number four is Security Transportation Services. And number five is Court Services Incorporated. So these are the top five that are involved in the transportation. They don't even report their numbers, you know, because what's been stated is that it's no way to market how many people or, or to keep track of how many people are going through. But they don't publish their numbers. If we go back to what the other article stated where they said about 300,000 per year, and that was, you know, going on over a decade ago. So we can imagine how much it is now. And that rate of 80 cents to $1.50 per mile per prisoner, you know, we know that the fees will be astronomical. So that's what I have for you, Max. You know, this is just some of the players and some of the areas, the major areas of just showing who benefits from this whole package. That was, that was well done and, and well presented. You came with the facts as usual. And uh, I'd like to think that Thank that's you. going to be uh, what people know us for is dropping the facts about it. You know what I mean? And the numbers are there. Thank you. I appreciate Hmm. Yeah, it's well well deserved. I was writing some notes about the things that you were saying, and also I had a couple of insights of my own. One, I want to point back to one of the clips you heard earlier, where we were talking about the no big contract and how that 
online class, managed to get this huge government contract with no bid, meaning that they just gave it to them. So they invested something like $100,000. They wind and nine the legislators. They got the bill written, and then they were awarded the contracts. The same type of hustle, and that's what it's called, the Mississippi hustle, we discussed right. in Mississippi Goddamn. Well, that's what they've been doing in Mississippi, Louisiana, South Carolina, at least. And the FBI is up to their games, up to their games so deep that the longest-serving commissioner of prisons in the state of Mississippi is doing upwards of three decades in prison right now. But another thing you remind me of is the dude that was with uh, Christopher Epps, Commissioner Christopher Epps, was Cecil Wolf of McCrory. Cecil McCrory was a former legislator and former judge. His connection is right there with Alec, working for the prisons, hustling these states for millions and millions of dollars. Some of these companies right. that you mentioned are worth a couple billion. Some of them, like the uh, the what's it, AMRAC, the, the food company, is worth like $14 billion, right? I mean, right. so many of them and so many billions floating around that they're all feeding off of. But what is the root of this profit? Where does it all come from? What is it completely dependent upon? Human Make bodies. Make it plain. Make it plain. It's dependent on human bodies, yes. Slavery and human trafficking. And if you don't have enough criminals to in order to get more money, you simply make them by drafting the laws to do so. Three strikes laws, mandatory sentencing, all these laws that directly affected the black community, as Bernie Sanders pointed out in our very first clip. Uh, the other thing I want to point out, J-Pay, man. J-Pay probably handles more money than most banks, <laughs> you know? They have a potential right. client base of 12 to 14 million people a year, every year, the limits that have to use JPay, and they are extremely exorbitant. I mean, when we talk about uh, extortion, these brothers and sisters right there in JPay will show you how it's done. Uh, you were talking about the phones, like nine dollars a minute, right? Twelve, nineteen dollars for fifteen right. minutes, right? Remember right. when Justice was in prison? My son was in prison. I went down to New Jersey from South Carolina, as I had been doing, to visit my son. Mm-hmm. And when I got there after that long fourteen-hour drive, they told me. You can't visit your son no more. From now on, you have to. You have to. Not there's another alternative. You have to use this video conferencing where it's fifteen dollars for ten minutes. Oh my God! Now you got kidnapping and uh, right. extortion both together because you, you kidnapped my kid and you're selling his image back to me. And right. this money is never accounted for in the government budget because it's not from the government budget. These monies come from the people, which goes upwards of a. Uh, I think I heard reports of like as much as $500 million a year. So that was, oh, and one other thing, the transport company, man, um, I don't have the information in front of me right now, but I Mm -hmm. remember watching the congressional hearings about these transport companies where they were testifying that people had been raped on their uh, transports, murdered on their transports, uh, left in critical condition on their transports, brutally beaten on their transports, and a number of bodies never were recovered. Like, people went on this transport, and they never made it to the end. And nobody knows what happens to the bodies. That was all in congressional testimony. 
Unbelievable. At one point, we found out that the GEO group was literally going to Mexico, picking up illegal immigrants and bringing them back to their prisons. (laughs) They were employees of the prison that were doing this. Kidnapping. Kidnapping and human trafficking. Yeah, it's slavery and human trafficking, man. That's exactly what they're into. You cannot believe that we are this criminal, man. If any company would be doing the same thing when they're talking about privatizing to the degree they are. Your bottom line is to make money. You don't want to hear about no stories about where your services may not be needed one day. That, that's not something you want to talk about. There is no police union on earth or in this country I ever heard that said, you know, one day I hope crime is gone so we can all just not have a job. <laughs> it's, that's not how they right. think. Yeah, that's it's, never going to happen. There are huge lobbies with a lot of power, and they get away with a lot of things, including murder. But these people who depend on this for their livelihoods, like in our Alabama expose, I think that was our first broadcast, where the politicians admit to you, this is what we're using it for. It's an economic development program, 700 jobs here, $8 million a year there, $50,000 a year here. They don't care if there's crime or not. Just put the prison there. We'll fill the bodies. We'll put bodies in it. Right, right. Yes, we even have the clip of the auction that's going on where he's saying, look, this is what you're going to be able to generate, you know, right Right, in the auction. Hey, quick question. Yeah. Did did you do the music this uh, segment yet? I I did the music for uh, Stephanie Todd. Oh, you already did that? that. All right. Right, yeah, yeah that was, that you was happened good. to miss that. It was a very nice track, man. And I was like, man, I wish I had somebody to discuss that one with. <laughs> well, you got him yeah. now. That, that was definitely a good one, man. Uh, yeah, she, it was a know, very I, nice I searched clip. Through a lot of, searched through a lot of different remakes to find that gem, and she did a great job, Stephanie Todd. Um, shout out to Tamika Fest and Tamika Harper for allowing me to participate and get my crown today. I went and dropped the jewel. Uh, you can watch it on YouTube on her page at Georgia Me the Poet and also on her Facebook page at the same address. Wow. Wow. So you said there's something going on tomorrow because I want to tune in for that. Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, once again, part of Tamika Fest 2012, the Prismatic Dreams poets will be on display. Uh, there's a number of us that are coming in at 9 o'clock in the morning, so you're going to hear us all back-to-back. It's going to be a powerful presentation. Prismatic Dream Poets are no joke. <laughs> you know what I mean? We, we right, are pretty good right. at what we do. You're going to see a lot of different examples of spoken word and really how powerful it can be. Well, awesome. So that's I'm looking forward to that. Yep, com. I am, too, except it's 9 in the morning. Like, who does poetry at 9 in the morning? But... She's making history, yeah. and it's going to be an all-day event. <laughs> so we're down yeah, with I'll the Yeah, I have to catch. I, I, I'll, I'll be late. <laughs> <laughs> I can dig it. I can dig it, man. Yeah, I'll, I'll be in on CP time, man. So <laughs> there you have it. So, yeah, man, those were my notes about everything. Um, You know, I, I just want to keep pointing out the cons- not conspiracy theory, but cons- conspiracy facts. Because we've been showing the Mississippi hustle is a nationwide circumstance. All of these different companies now literally getting together to deciding what our laws should be, criminalizing the people, incarcerating the people, and all for profit. As you said, there's uh, the clip 
uh, and I believe you're talking about the one from the film Immigrants for Sale, right? Which which part are you talking about? The auction? Is that what you were talking about? Yeah, that's it. That was the one. Yeah, that's that's something you can never forget once you see that. Like people can tell you whatever they want to tell you. But if you go to a freaking prison auction and you see the man there telling everybody to their face, listen, the product is people, and we're going to bring in as many as you, you possibly need, no matter what your business is, there's going to be a steady supply of people in this country for you to keep operating. And then bid at $5.5 million for a building that is based on the idea he just said that it's going to be filled with people. Right, and how can you guarantee that? Well, the reason they can guarantee that is because they know they have the contracts already guaranteeing it. Guaranteeing it. But, but you know, sometimes up to 25 years. 20, 25 years, 90 to 100%. In Arizona, they have 100% contracts. I think Nevada might have it as well. And Nevada is one of those, uh, I might have mentioned it before, one of those hubs of human trafficking. And Arizona right. is one of those because uh, they had that prison over there called Eloy that was built specifically right. to house Hawaiians. But now it's, Hawaii, uh, it's Hawaiians and Puerto Ricans and a few other groups, ethnic groups. But the prison, when it was first built, uh, was passed by the mayor of Eloy. And the mayor of Eloy was a part-time mayor, but a full-time employee of CCA. And so was the deputy mayor. <laughs> and they passed the agreement to build this new prison in Eloy that would only house Hawaiians. So if you did something wrong in Hawaii, they're going to ship you out off across the sea there with some human trafficking and drop you in this right. prison where your family can't see you, your sons and daughters can't see you. If you die, you're probably uh, going to have to cost a fortune to get you home to be buried or be buried behind a prison. It's pretty sick, man, when you start thinking about it. And behind it all, is this huge money trail. Yeah, huge money trail, changing hands. You have major corporations that are on operating on both ends, operating in every aspect of it, collecting the money, collecting the money, hauling off truckloads of cash to the bank. And behind it all is corporations like Alec. So that's yes. Which is really a That's cabal. in a nutshell, Max. Uh, Alec itself is a 501c3, I believe, a nonprofit organization. It does not pay any right. taxes. It's just run by these collection of billionaires who use it as a vehicle to construct the nation they want to have through its laws and to exploit its resources through its human capital using the prison industries, the bail industries, the warrant industries, the telecom industries, all these things combined to siphon out what is virtually nearing a trillion dollars a freaking year in the United States. Right. I know women who have been so mournful of the loss of their sons into these prison industries and they love them so much that they, the mothers spend their rent money for them to be able to talk to their family members sometimes. 
And that's what it costs. What'd you say? Fifteen dollars for ten minutes? <laughs> Come on, man. It's only a matter of time for it's one hundred and fifty. Right. And and Easily. we're talking just one phone call. And I mean, you know, most of the times you want to talk to your family every day. Right. So if you if you're the, talking, you're talking a hundred and five dollars a week, you know. And then the family is is inadequately employed, if employed at all, it really starts adding up and putting pressure on the family. And that's just that's just the phone call. That's not counting, you know, what they're spending on commissary, what they're spending on food packages, what they're spending, like you mentioned, of how, you know, you have to do video visitation. You know that's costing fifteen dollars. That's not counting what's going into stamps through JPay. And the JPay, it just piles up, piles up, piles up. And then on top of it, I also posted an article about how there's a. I didn't cover it, but it was it's one article where it mentioned about the person coming home from prison, and it was actually a, his his funds were put on a debit card. Hold on, let me pull it up real quick as we're coming towards the end of the program. Release cards turn inmates and their families into profit stream. It's put out by Malta Justice Initiative. This is also by JPay. You know, this this uh this uh um, master MasterCard debit, you know, where you know the money they're leaving the prisons with rather than having a paper check or giving them cash, they put it on the card. But then, of course, with the card comes all kinds of fees. So within the article, there's one guy where he came home from prison with $120, but he only got to use $70 of it because it was just covered in so many fees. So they found even another way to make more money. They're coming up with more creative ways to make money out of it. Yes, uh, absolutely. And there's an incentive to have more criminals. I mean, everywhere you look, the incentive is there to have more criminals. For instance, the transport companies, I mean, just think about it. It's not in their best interest to have less people being transported through from prison to prison. So they would easily support any laws or any uh, efforts or policies that allow prisons to transport you from point A to point B. And if you have to use the right. plane, it's better for them because that's more money, you know, that they'll be making. And then they're often unaccountable. Uh, particularly when they get these no bid contracts, when Am, when the food company you mentioned earlier was uh, investigated by the feds for sending maggots into their food to the prisons, like literally you mm-hmm. getting maggots in your food. When that occurred, uh, they basically said that we are not under the FDA because we're not a restaurant business. <laughs> we're private industry with a contract with the government, so we can't be held accountable by the FDA. And you could just give them whatever right. you want to give them. So, right. Yeah, the incentive there is to have more criminals and to treat them as, as cheaply and badly as you can. Same thing for the health care areas. In Alabama, they were talking about the health care running upwards in, I think it was like the hundreds of millions or something over a 10-year period. So, Again, no big contract given it to this health care facility that was not providing health care. Like right now, all over prisons across America, there's some fool with gloves and a mask feeling people's forehead, and it earns them about $20,000 a pop every time he does it. 
through the government and this emergency funding that's coming out. They're not treating right. people. They're just checking their foreheads, like the brother said when he called us, and telling them right. whether or not they're sick and then sending them somewhere else. But that's considered medical care, <laughs> and it's worth a fortune. So they sign off for that as a fortune. Another one that you didn't mention uh, would be the lab technicians across America. We found out that at least 14 states have an incentive for lab technicians to provide positive drug or alcohol results. And as a result of that, on numerous occasions, lab technicians have been arrested and incarcerated for falsifying anywhere upwards of 60,000 false reports. In order to get paid extra money and throw your life away in the meantime to do it. There were so many cases that have been affected that the Department of Justice finally decided they're not even going to investigate anymore. It would take too much manpower. Leaving you know, people as, you, as you mentioned that, I recall, you know, I was just recently watching The Innocence Files on Netflix, and I just got through the first couple of episodes where they were dealing with bite marks. And after watching it and seeing how everything is laid out, that you know, it's even being presented by the ACLU and others that bite bite mark te- uh, technology is junk science. You know, so we're going to hear a lot about that in the future of how, you know, you have this one guy on here and you could tell that he was just in it for the money. You know, give him anything. And yeah, it's a bite mark. It's a bite mark. And, you know, it wasn't even bite marks. You know, that it's a, it's an inexact science and it has no place in the courtroom. But, of course, you have so many people sitting in prison right now off of white marks. Again, someone just making money, making money to rubber stamp it because they know if the prosecution is hiring you, then, of course, they're looking for you to say that it's that it's bite marks and that this person is a match. So the incentive is there that basically you don't get paid if you don't come back with positive results. A lot of people lost their freedom behind that. I believe the statistics said it was 95% incorrect, meaning that 9 out of 10 people convicted on such evidence were very likely guilty, uh, innocent and not guilty. Right. And they're probably right. still in prison to this day. Thank God for groups like the uh, Innocence Project who helped to get them out. Right. And also the integrity units across America that have begun to be formed throughout the district attorney's office. That checks on right. these old records. Well, like you said, brother, we're coming up on the end of the program. Uh, as usual, I think we did a good job of providing information. I want to be clear, as always, that any aspect of this system, you could study just one part of it for years and never get it off. You see, you know what I mean? We're pointing out a group of makers and, and some individually, but they are upward in the hundreds and they're global, you know? Uh, so. We didn't even go all the way up to the top of the school chain. We just identified for you this cabal of billionaires who own corporations that are writing your laws, and they themselves are human traffickers and slavers who should be put on trial. Right. Well, yeah, so we did what we can do, and hopefully uh, that gets you started in understanding a clearer uh, picture of what it is that we're dealing with. Um, one of the things I did notice throughout all the clips is the very national view that the people who were doing the research had. Uh, if they only knew, man, how big this thing had become these days. It's just so much. 
It's just so much. And that's what makes it hard for us even uh, preparing for the shows. It's just so much information that you say, how can I narrow it down to something that can fit within an hour and a half to two hours? It's just so much information. Well, that's what poets do best, right, poet? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I heard a yeah. few words. They said a poet, uh, in comparison, they said that a movie maker or a film writer can write a movie that takes two hours, two and a half hours to tell. An author can write a book that takes 300, 400, 500 pages to tell. But a poet can write a poem with one page that tells all of that and more. Yeah. In just three or four minutes. In just three or four minutes. And yep, indeed. And that's man. amazing, man. That's amazing. All right. So we up into the final comments and quotes of the evening part? Yeah, I'm 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 gonna start off. So All right. I this this is a quote, you know, I love it. It's it's really a long speech, but I'm just gonna pull out one part of the speech that really stands out for me. Our national our national morality and religion have reached a depth of baseness than which there is no lower deep. They both allow that if men can make money by stealing men and women and by working them up into sugar, rice, and tobacco, they may innocently continue the practice, and that who condemns it is an unworthy citizen and a disturber of the church. Money is the measure of morality and the success or failure of slavery as a money-making system determines with many whether the thing is virtuous or villainous and whether it should be maintained or abolished. That's from Frederick Douglass in his West India Emancipation Speech delivered uh, in New York, August 3rd, 1857. Mm. All right. Well, that was powerful indeed. Uh, Here's mine. And it comes from Thomas Jefferson. The whole commerce between master and slave is a perpetual exercise of the most boisterous passions, the most unremitting despotism on the one part and degrading submissions on the other. Our children see this and learn to imitate it. Well, we're not done yet. We still got one more segment coming up. Uh, Over the past uh, seven weeks, we did part one of Ozzy Davis reads Frederick Douglass. We have received part two of that CD, and we continue that beginning next week. Uh, this week, with awesome. uh, bridging the gap segment, is going to be a little different. Uh, we will have Pearl Mackey reading Angela Davis's speech, "The Gates to Freedom," from the Almeida Theater, and we'll end tonight's program with a clip of Solomon Burke's "None of Us Are Free." Uh, I'm Max Parthas. You could have been anywhere, but you're here, and I really appreciate that. Check us out on our archives at abolitiontoday.org. So until next week, think about abolition today. Peace. June 9, 1972, the defendant, a black activist. The charge, conspiracy, kidnapping, and first-degree murder. The trial has run. 13 weeks. The all-white jury deliberated for 13 hours. The verdict, not guilty. With her first moments of freedom, 
She roused the crowd of thousands, re-energizing the fight for radical change. The Gates to Freedom, Angela Davis, read by Pearl Mackey. It has been said many times that one can learn a great deal about a society by looking towards its prisons. Look towards its dungeons, and there you will see, in microcosmic form, the sickness of the entire system. And today, there is something that is particularly revealing about the analogy between the prison and the larger society of which it is a reflection. For in a painfully real sense, we are all prisoners of a society whose bombastic proclamations of freedom and justice for all are nothing but meaningless rhetoric. In this society, today, we are surrounded by the very wealth and the scientific achievements which hold forth a promise of freedom. Freedom is so near, yet at the same time it is so far away. And this thought invokes in me the same sensation I felt as I reflected on my own condition in jail. For from my cell, I could look down upon the crowded streets of Greenwich Village, almost tasting the freedom of movement and the freedom of space which had been taken from me and all my sisters in captivity. Our condition, here and now, the condition of all of us who are brown and black and working women and men, bears a very striking similarity to the condition of the prisoner. The wealth and the technology around us tells us that a free, humane, harmonious society lies very near. But at the same time, it is so far away because someone is holding the keys. And that someone refuses to open the gates to freedom. Like the prisoner, we are locked up with the ugliness of racism and poverty and war and all the attendant mental frustrations and manipulations. We're also locked up with our dreams and visions of freedom and with the knowledge that if we only had the keys, if we could only seize them from the keepers, from the Standard Oils, the General Motors, and all the giant corporations, and of course, from their protectors, the government, if we could only get our hands on those keys, we could transform these visions and these dreams into reality. Our situation bears a very excruciating similarity to the situation of the prisoner. And we must never forget this. For if we do, we will lose our desire for freedom and our will to struggle for liberation. Listen for a moment to George Jackson's description of life in Soledad Prison's O-Wing. This place destroys the logical processes of the mind. A man's thoughts become completely disorganized. The noise... Madness streaming from every throat. Frustrated sounds from the bars. Metallic sounds from the walls. The steel trays. The iron beds bolted to the wall. The hollow sounds from a cast iron sink. A toilet. The smells. The human waste thrown at us. Unwashed bodies. The rotten food. Relief is so distant that it is very easy to lose hope. 
than the gods with their carbines and their sticks and tear gas are there to preserve this terror, to preserve it at any cost. The terror of life in prison. The socio-political function of prisons today is about a self-perpetuating system of terror. For prisons are political weapons. They function as a means of containing elements in this society which threaten the stability of the larger system. In prisons, people who are actually or potentially disruptive of the status quo are confined, contained and punished, and in some cases, forced to undergo psychological treatment by mind-altering drugs. This is happening. The prison system is a weapon of repression. The government views young black and brown people as actually or potentially the most rebellious elements of this society. And thus, the jails and prisons of this society are overflowing with young people of color. Anyone who has seen the streets of ghettos can already understand how easily a sister or brother can fall victim to the police, who are always there en masse. Tens of thousands of prisoners have never been convicted of any crime. They're simply there, victims. They're there under the control of insensitive, incompetent, and often blatantly racist public defenders who insist that they plead guilty even though they know that their client is just as innocent as they are. And for those who have committed a crime, we have to seek out the root cause. And we seek this cause not in them as individuals, but in the capitalist system that produces the need for crime in the first place. As one student of the prison system has said, the materially hungry must steal to survive, and the spiritually hungry commit antisocial acts because their human needs cannot be met in a property-oriented state. It is a fair estimate, he goes on to say, that somewhere around 90% of the crimes committed would not be considered crimes or would not occur in a people-oriented society. A prisoner who had taken part in the Tombs Rebellion in New York gave the following answers to questions put to him by a newsreader. Question. What is your name? Answer. I am a revolutionary. What are you charged with? I was born black. How long have you been in? I've had trouble since the day I was born. Once our sisters and brothers are entrapped inside these massive medieval fortresses and dungeons, whether for nothing at all, or whether for frame-up political charges, whether for trying to escape their misery through a petty property crime, through narcotics or prostitution, they are caught in a vicious circle. George Jackson was murdered by mindless, carbine-toting guards because he refused, he resisted, and he helped to teach his fellow prisoners that there was hope through struggle. As I was saved and freed by the people, so we must save and free these beautiful, struggling brothers and sisters. We must save them. 
and all of our sisters and brothers who must live with and struggle together against the terrible realities of captivity. My freedom was achieved as the outcome of a massive, massive people struggle. Young people and older people, black, brown, Asian, Native American and white people, students and workers. The people seized the keys which opened the gates to freedom. And we've just begun. The momentum of this movement must be sustained and it must be increased. Let us try to seize more keys and open more gates and bring out more sisters and brothers so that they can join the ranks of our struggle out here. Abolition. Abolition. Abolition, 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 abolition. abolition.